Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former Vice President Mike Pence has declared he's running for the Republican presidential nomination. He released a video on social media this morning. NPR's Kelsey Snell says Pence is talking about many things, but not about former President Donald Trump. So far, he sounds a lot like the Mike Pence who ran in the 2016 primary, which is actually pretty interesting because a lot has changed in American politics since then and within the Republican Party in particular. You know, he talks about free trade and fair markets, uh, Christian family values and conservatism. He talks about his opposition to abortion, but what he doesn't really talk much about is Trump. NPR's Kelsey Snell reporting. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is expected to announce he's running for the GOP nomination today. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie declared yesterday he is also seeking the Republican nomination. A federal judge in Florida has temporarily blocked that state's ban on gender-affirming care for children. From member station WFSU, Regan McCarthy reports LGBTQ advocates say the ruling is an affirmation of the humanity of transgender people. In the ruling, U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle calls the bans an exercise in politics, not good medicine, and says gender identity is real. Simone Chris, with the Southern Legal Council is one of the lawyers representing the plaintiffs in the case. Unfortunately, we're in a place where we do need judges to specifically say that because there are so many folks that don't believe trans folks exist or believe that it's just a choice um, and that they don't need medical care. A spokesperson for Governor Ron DeSantis said the governor disagrees with the ruling and plans to fight against what his office calls rogue elements in the medical establishment. The state is expected to appeal the injunction. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. The collapse of a dam in southern Ukraine is causing massive flooding downstream. But as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, it will cause big problems upstream as well. The dam was holding back a reservoir the size of Utah's Great Salt Lake. It supplied drinking water to towns and cities on both sides of the front lines. In the coming days, that water is essentially going to go down the drain. David Helms, a retired U.S. meteorologist who's closely watching the situation at the dam, says it's a crisis. It's a huge water catastrophe. It'll have to be trucked in. The reservoir also fed nearly a 1,000 miles worth of irrigation canals throughout southern Ukraine. Without it, farmers will be unable to grow vegetables and cash crops, such as rapeseed. The region is the hottest and driest part of the country, and the crisis is likely to intensify as the summer wears on. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Pope Francis has entered a hospital for abdominal surgery. The Vatican says he will have treatment for his intestine. Francis is 86 years old. He previously had part of his colon removed. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Local environmental advocates and people from the boating industry are debating a new federal rule. That rule would impose tighter speed restrictions on boats. Environmentalists say the rule would help protect the endangered North Atlantic right whale. But as WBUR's Paula Mora reports, the boating industry says it'll harm their business. The new rule will protect more areas along the Massachusetts coast and require that boats slow down for more months of the year. For the first time, some boats under 65 feet would also be included. Jessica Redfern is with the New England Aquarium and testified at the hearing. In the last 15 years, scientists have documented 13 deaths by boat strikes. Four of those strikes have involved vessels smaller than 65 feet. 
recreational boat industry members testified that the rule would have severe economic and safety impacts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. State lawmakers are considering new tax incentives for certain small businesses. State Representative Carlos Gonzalez wants grants for small businesses that hire formerly incarcerated people and those who receive transitional assistance benefits. This incentive will be a $15,000 incentive for micro business. No different than a tax incentive goes to major corporations to develop major employment opportunities. Well, this opportunity will go directly for somebody that may be, have been a tax burden to become a taxpayer. Gonzalez is also calling for a $2,000 tax credit for each qualifying person a business hires. He believes the plan would boost local businesses, combat recidivism, and promote racial equity. Also on Beacon Hill, some Massachusetts lawmakers want to put a new tax on real estate transactions. The move is part of an effort to generate more money for affordable housing in the state. The fee would apply to home sales over $1 million. Communities with lower median home prices would be able to opt out. Those against the proposal say it could drive up the cost of housing. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts says it doubled spending on mental health services since the start of the pandemic. The state's largest insurer spent $1.3 billion on those services last year alone. Behavioral health appointments doubled during the same time to $8 million last year. Blue Cross leaders say the pandemic accelerated a mental health crisis. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org. The Red Sox beat the Guardians 5-4 to four last night in Cleveland. The teams will play again tonight. An air quality alert remains in effect statewide today because of smoke from Canadian wildfires. Morning sun will give way to clouds with some afternoon showers possible. It'll be in the upper 60s, mostly cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Cloudy with showers again tomorrow in the 60s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man. That would be tough. I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate, and I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. 
Welcome to Wednesday. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. And if you just woke up, here's what's going on. We're in the midst of our short June fundraiser. Our goal is to bring on 700 people as monthly contributors. And there are a lot of reasons to give right now. One is the Eton Radio for $10 a month. But the big headline right now is a triple match. Generous WBUR listeners want you to give, so much so that they are tripling whatever you give. So if impact matters to you, this is your time, because you can have three times the impact you could normally have for WBUR. And that means the world to us, because it means we can keep bringing you the important news and conversations that you depend on to keep you and your community informed. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, here with the host of the Endless Thread podcast, Amory Sievertson. Good morning, Rupa. And, you know, there was a time hearing that that segment that we, we just heard of listeners imagining a world without WBUR, without public radio. There was a time where that just felt too extreme, too doom and gloom. And I'm not here to bring the doom and gloom. I'm here to tell you that we just can't take WBUR for granted. It only exists because of listeners. And you heard one listener in there say, you know, I, I, I give, but I bet there are a lot of listeners who don't give. Um, newsflash, there are a lot of listeners who don't give. And, and not everyone can give, and that's okay. But that's why it's so important that if you can, that you do, that you join us in any amount, you join the other sustaining members in any amount, and have your match tripled right now. This is the best time to give, especially if, you know, if, if $10 a month feels right for you, that's going to become $30 a month just for giving right now. Don't let us sit with this uneasy feeling of whether or not WBUR will continue to exist. You know, someone who feels that I know is our CEO, Margaret Lowe, and she talked about this economic uncertainty of public radio with us recently. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So my hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. There is a match right now where you can help, just like Margaret is asking you to. You All you have to do is give whatever you can, and whatever you give will be matched every month for a year. So again, $10 becomes $30. $100 becomes $300. And like Margaret said, these are tough times for a lot of people, and a lot of people are listeners, and we want them to always be able to listen, even if they can can't give. You can help them and us at the same time by giving to WBUR. When you step up as a monthly contributor, you'll be making sure this important service continues for everyone in your community because WBUR's future is not guaranteed. We need you to make sure it's there in the future. And this is a great time to do it when your contribution will be tripled. So do everything you can for WBUR because you depend on us we need to depend on you. Act now. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
1-800-273-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, with full-day summer art camps for 1st through 12th graders. More information at newartcenter.org. And BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, bionovascientific.com, where concept becomes cure. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We have some news that is likely to make you hungry this morning. We meet a man in a few minutes who works with Masa, a Latin American food staple. First, we have an update on the war in Ukraine. Satellite images show a landscape transformed. The images show the dam break earlier this week altered the shape of the Dnieper River. Entire waterfront neighborhoods that stood on dry land are now underwater. The dam itself is largely swept away. Ukraine blames its collapse on Russia. Russians who occupy that region of southern Ukraine deny it. All of this happened in a region where Ukrainians were widely expected to launch an offensive against Russian troops. So what's this mean for civilians and for the war? NPR's Greg Meyer is in Kyiv. Hey there, Greg. Good morning, Steve. How does this flooded area relate to the battlefield? Well, the dam is on the Dnipro River, the main river that runs north-south through Ukraine. It is the front line in this area. The Ukrainians are on the west side. The Russians are on the east side. Uh, if you go a little further south of the dam, 50 miles to the large city of Kherson, the Russians fire across the river every day. It's one of the hardest-hit uh, urban areas in, in Ukraine. So it's very much part of the fighting now. And as you noted, it could be part of a Ukrainian effort to cross the river and, and drive out the Russians. Yeah, we don't know the Ukrainians will attack that way. And in fact, all of the telegraphing in that direction would almost imply they might attack somewhere else. But does the flooding there make the potential military problem harder? Uh, absolutely, if indeed that's the case. We know, generally speaking, the Ukrainians probably will want to attack somewhere in the south to try to, to try to cut the, the Russian forces in two. We know that river crossings are always difficult military operations. So if you flood the area, it could certainly make it more difficult. The Ukrainians have already addressed this, saying they have all the necessary watercraft for such an operation, and they're not talking in any detail about what they might do militarily. One quick historical note here. In World War II, the Soviets blew up a dam in this area about 100 miles north on the same river in an attempt to prevent a Nazi, Nazi German offensive. So there is a precedent mm. here. Yeah, we don't know the cause of this dam break, but we do know that dams have been deliberately broken for various reasons in past wars. Greg, I want to ask about the people in those satellite images from Maxar that we've been looking at. How many people got away? Well, Steve, the initial fear was this torrent of water could cause huge numbers of casualties, especially when it reached this, this big city of Kherson further south. Now, the water was so powerful, we saw video of a house that was lifted off its foundation and swept down the river intact, just like it was a boat. Hmm. Uh, at a town next to the dam, a zoo was flooded and more or less 300 animals were killed. But Ukrainian officials, including the prime minister, say no human deaths have been reported reported uh, on the western side of the river, which Ukraine controls. There are media reports on the Russian side that a few people are missing, and that's the side, uh, as I noted, that Russia occupies. How do we find out who's responsible? 
So Ukraine and Russia continue to accuse each other, and it'll be hard to investigate because the dam is gone and the river is the front line in the war, as we noted. Now, we should emphasize a couple points. Russian troops seized the dam at the very beginning of the war in February last year and have been in control ever since. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is claiming that Russia blew up the dam from the inside. Uh, Now, there are the Ukrainian forces nearby on the western side of the river. But it's not clear how they could conduct a massive sabotage operation without being detected. This is a huge or was a huge dam. It can't be taken out with a single missile. Also, we should note Russia has attacked Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, civilian targets throughout the war. Russia spent the entire winter firing missiles at Ukraine's electrical grid in every corner of the country. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks for your reporting there in Kiev. Sure thing, Steve. Dan Rice joins us next. He is the president of a new institution, the American University Kiev. He was previously an Iraq War veteran for the United States and special advisor to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. He is, of course, following news of the forecast Ukrainian offensive. Mr. Rice, welcome to the program. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. Are Thanks you sure there's me. going? Are you sure there's going to be a big offensive? The Ukrainians have talked about it so much that I wonder. Uh, absolutely. I expect a counteroffensive uh, uh, very soon. We won't know when it starts uh, until we have perfect hindsight, but you're seeing shaping operations, and shaping operations is a military term for pre- preparation for a major counteroffensive. So you're seeing attacks across all areas to confuse the Russians. They won't know where it's going to come, but when it comes, it will be uh, very uh, a very large or multiple counteroffensives. Uh, and I expect that very soon. Oh, so when we hear uh, just in the last few minutes news of Ukrainians and Russians commenting on a Ukrainian attack in the northern city of Bakhmut, that's the kind of thing that might be a shaping operation. That would make the Russians think maybe this is the counteroffensive, maybe it's not. Is that what you're saying? That could be one of the many uh, attacks. Um, you know, there's partisan Russian attacks deep inside of, uh, inside of Russia. There are attacks, uh, drone uh, attacks against uh, the, the Black Sea Fleet. Um, you're seeing a lot of attacks increasing. It's a lot of kinetic activity, we call it, um, across multiple fronts. The Russians are going to be confused. They're, they can't defend everywhere, which is why they blew up this dam. So that's called territorial denial. So by blowing up the dam, they make that area very difficult to pass, almost impassable. So armored forces can't go across an area that's just been flooded. So they're trying to deny a certain area of the uh, potential counteroffensive in order to force Ukraine to go to a different area where Russia can concentrate its forces in the defense. I guess we should note uh, Ukraine has explicitly accused Russia of blowing up the dam. The Russians have denied it. It sounds like you don't have a lot of doubt about who did it. No, not at all. I mean, you look to motive. You know, the Ukrainians aren't going to blow up their own dam and hurt their own people and, and destroy the infrastructure. Russia's been attacking the Ukrainian infrastructure since October. I was here when we started taking inbound missiles, and they were doing a very effective job at taking out the grid, which was their target. This is the grid. A hydroelectric dam is the grid. They're denying the future of Ukraine. They know that they're going to lose here, in my opinion. So what they're doing is trying to destroy a, a healthy uh, economy within a free Ukraine is the biggest danger to Russia internally. So they want to deny Ukraine the opportunity to succeed. That's why they're trying to destroy the infrastructure before they are forced out. So they aren't doing a good job here in Kyiv, 
mostly because of Raytheon systems. NASAMs, Patriot, uh, mm. Stinger are taking down all of the inbound cruise missiles, that, even the ballistic ones. Uh, and so Ukraine in Kiev, we have power 24-7. Uh, down, uh, down south, they just took out the hydroelectric dam. And I would not doubt if they sabotage the 6-gigawatt uh, Zeporizhia nuclear plant before they are forced out. That's we will, we will continue watching that. I've just got a few seconds here. I want to ask one other thing. There are certain advantages to being sure. on the defensive, as Ukraine has been. In a few seconds, do some of those advantages pass to Russia when Ukraine has to attack them and extend their supply lines and everything else? Yes, 100%. In the defense, you are much stronger. You're not getting out of your foxholes. You're dug in. You've, you've set up defenses for a long period of time, like Russia has in Crimea. The attacking force generally needs a 5 to 1 ratio. Um, so Ukraine has to concentrate its forces, which it will, and strike hard and fast with, a, with armored 10 brigades, new 10 brigades that have been right. fielded, and they will strike somewhere or okay. multiple locations. But they need to hit hard and fast and penetrate and envelop and destroy a Russian army. Dan Rice, former advisor to the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's military. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Author Jorge Gavidria considers masa a kitchen staple. It means dough. Masa means dough, but is specifically a kind of dough that comes from corn. Gavidria and his team won a James Beard Award for their YouTube series celebrating this ancient dough and the communities who cook with it. NPR's Milton Guevara checked in. The award-winning series is called Masienda Presents. It features farmers, home cooks, and professional chefs. The first episode is about a bakery called Gusto Bread, which is co-owned by baker Arturo and Cecil. I started experimenting with, with sourdough concha recipe, adding uh, masa, so I learned to nixtamalize corn at that same time as well. Gaviria says Enciso blends European and indigenous techniques. He really wanted to infuse his roots of Chicano identity in baking, and so you see that reflected in all of these dishes that he prepares. Another episode tells the story of how trayudas, which are like large tortillas, are moved from Oaxaca, Mexico, to south-central L.A. La gastronomía de Oaxaca es tan amplio que no tiene límites. The cuisine of Oaxaca is so huge that it has no limits, says Alfonso Poncho Martinez. He runs a pop-up grill in L.A. called Poncho's Trayudas. The story of Poncho himself is really amazing, and just as a small business owner, but what's amazing is that we were able to kind of also go in depth as to how he's able to get these Tlayulas brought in from Oaxaca every day. And this informal, you know, import system that exists around this that is fueling immigrant diaspora communities across the country. Jorge Gaviria founded his own business in 2014. Macienda supplies cooks with masa ingredients and kitchen tools. Before that, he worked at farms and high-end restaurants for years. And as I started to really kind of dive deeper into the foods that I loved, I realized that they lacked the same kind of representation that, you know, French and New American food had in the culinary canon. And I wanted to see that representation change. I wanted to see, you know, rice and beans elevated in a way and celebrated for just the deliciousness and, you know, the comfort that they, they provide. For a taste of that deliciousness, here's his advice. If you have a taco, which I'm sure everybody listening to this is going to have one in the next couple of days, if not the next couple of weeks, consider maybe making that tortilla from scratch. Which starts with masa. Milton Gavada, NPR News.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm Tiziana Deering. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal of 700 monthly contributors to keep our journalism strong. No reason to wait. Give at WBUR.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, and we're in a short June fundraiser. And like Tiziana said, we're asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. We would love for you to join us right now when a group of WBUR listeners are offering to triple your contribution. We just heard that this match is going to end at 8, actually, so act fast. We only have a little more than a half hour or so, and this makes a big difference to us three times the difference now, right now, in fact, what you give will help us bring you the important news and conversations that you turn to WBUR for every morning. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of the Endless Thread podcast, Amory Sievertson. Hey, good morning, Rupa. And you know what? I'm just going to put this out there. If you are already a supporter of WBUR, are, but but you usually give um, just a one-time amount, you know, maybe $100, $200 or something like that. I really want to encourage you right now to become a sustaining member. Turn that support for the next year or, or beyond, if you can do it, into a monthly gift of maybe $10 a month. Why should you do that right now? Because as Rupa said, for just the next 33 minutes or so, that money will be tripled. Your contribution will go three times as far, thanks to some generous listeners who stepped up to encourage you to do your part and said, hey, you know what? We're going to triple that money. So if you can give $10 a month, that's going to become $30 a month. If you can give $20 a month, that's going to become $60 a month for WBUR just for the next 33 minutes. Become a sustaining member because it helps us know what resources we have to keep being here for you. It it keeps WBUR strong throughout the year so that these, you know, the, the, the gifts that we receive, the donations that we receive, the support that we receive is is just more reliable. The future of WBUR is really in your hands, and, and we're asking you to be there for us right now. Have that money tripled by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online, WBUR.org. When you give to WBUR monthly, you become a reliable source of support that we can depend on. Do that for you, your family, and your community to keep to help keep bringing them the responsible, fair journalism they rely on. Because WBUR's future is not guaranteed. Just this week, there were strikes across the nation at Gannett Newspapers. That's just the latest example of the erosion of local journalism that's been happening for years, and it's only getting worse. WBUR has stood the test and remained a reliable source of unbiased truth and facts, and we have only been able to do that because of 
of listeners who, like you, who stepped up and gave monthly contributions. So be one of them. Give now and have your contribution tripled. That is the best way to help WBUR. That is how you can do the most for WBUR. We need you to ensure WBUR will be here for you and your community and will be able to continue to bring you the strong, deep reporting that you depend on. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, we'll keep the bar high in terms of our journalistic standards, our fact-checking, the rigor that we bring to the journalism you hear, uh, the power that we bring to the storytelling that you hear. We're asking you to, to be there for us, to be just as reliable, just as steady, just as steadfast in your support of WBUR as we are uh, about the journalism that we bring you. And, and you do that by giving a little bit of money every month. That's how we know that we can rely on our listeners, that we have the money it takes to be here so that we can withstand the economic ups and downs. We can withstand, you know, the layoffs and the cuts that a lot of other journalistic organizations are facing. Don't make us vulnerable to that. Be there for us and and we will be there for you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Just 30 minutes to have your money tripled for WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former Vice President Mike Pence has made it official. I'm announcing I'm running for President of the United States. Pence's 2024 Republican campaign released a video announcement this morning ahead of Pence's speech in Iowa this afternoon. North Dakota's Governor Doug Burgum is also expected to unveil his GOP campaign today. The governor has an event scheduled in Fargo. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie officially entered the race yesterday during a speech in New Hampshire. Christie attacked former President Donald Trump, who continues to lead his Republican rivals in the race for the GOP nomination. Police in Richmond, Virginia, say two people were killed and five others wounded yesterday when gunfire erupted following Huguenot High School's graduation ceremony. Witnesses say the shooting triggered panic outside a theater on the campus of Virginia Commonwealth University. Police say at least a dozen people were injured or treated for anxiety as a result of the chaos as people ran from the area. Here's Interim Police Chief Rick Edwards. We had one person who was struck by a car. That individual was nine years old. She was treated at the scene um, and then released and subsequently went to a local hospital where she continues to have non-life-threatening wounds. A 19-year-old suspect is under arrest. This is NPR News. 
Mike Johnston will be Denver's next mayor. The former Colorado state senator won the city's mayoral runoff election yesterday. Among the major issues in the election were the cost of housing and the city's growing homeless population. Johnston ran for governor in 2018. He will succeed Michael Hancock, who was prevented from running again because of term limits. A bipartisan group of senators wants Congress to permanently boost pay and benefits for federal wildland firefighters. They're often battling blazes in the western U.S. NPR's Kirk Sigler has more. Federal wildland firefighters recently got a $20,000 pay bump due to funding from the infrastructure law, but it expires at the end of September. In a letter to the Senate Homeland Security Committee from Colorado Democrat Michael Bennett, Wyoming Republican John Barrasso, and others, the senators say wildland firefighters deserve fair pay and time to recover from the increasingly dangerous work being asked of them. U.S. Forest Service and other crews have been struggling lately to recruit and retain firefighters, just as wildfires are getting more destructive. According to the senator's letter, between 2017 and 2021, an average of 12,000 homes and businesses were destroyed, amounting to $67 billion in losses. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. Wall Street futures are mixed this morning. Dow futures are off 20 points. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. State lawmakers believe the state's long-term climate goals remain on track. That's despite a request by developers of the South Coast Wind Project to renegotiate the contract they agreed to. They say they need more money to build the wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts. State Senator Michael Barrett is co-chair of the legislature's Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy Committee. The delay in generating offshore wind is going to put the 2025 and 2030 emissions limits for electric power in some jeopardy, but only for a year or two. And then we're going to be able to hit those limits and more, I hope. The developer of another wind farm, Commonwealth Wind, tried to back out of its contract last year. The state rejected that effort. Charlestown High School students will soon be able to enroll in part-time college classes. All students will be able to take classes at nearby Bunker Hill Community College. It's part of a larger plan to overhaul the city's high schools. Mayor Michelle Wu says it's about giving students access to higher learning. As the intellectual capital of the world, Boston has to be home also to opportunities for students to tap into the knowledge and resources, not just in our classrooms, but across the entire city. The city is also proposing splitting the O'Brien School of Math and Science from Madison Park Technical Vocational High School. The O'Brien would move to West Roxbury. A summer beer garden opens today on City Hall Plaza in Boston. It's a joint effort by two breweries in the city, Distraction Brewing of Roslindale and Democracy Brewing of Downtown Crossing. This summer, the plaza will also host live music, classes, and other events. It's 736. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. 
because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox snapped their three-game losing streak last night. They beat the Guardians in Cleveland 5-4. to The two teams will meet again tonight. Highs in the upper 60s today under skies that'll grow overcast. An air quality alert remains in effect statewide because of smoke from Canadian wildfires. There's a slight chance of showers around mid-afternoon. Tonight, still cloudy and low 50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again and highs in the mid-60s. We'll have another chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 57, 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Oklahoma has approved what would be the nation's first publicly funded religious school. The online charter school would be run by the Catholic Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. Robbie Korth, news director at KOSU in Oklahoma City, is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Robbie. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So religious schools can get some public funding now. How is this different? Well, so it really all has to do with scale. Most of the existing funding that can go to religious schools takes the form of like subsidies or grants or tuition vouchers. This school would be completely funded by the taxpayers, and that part is totally unprecedented. And it's also my understanding that if religious schools do get some public funding, it has to be segregated from completely religious activities, raising the obvious question here about the separation of church and state. Did that come up in the conversation around the approval process here? Yeah, so school choice advocates argued hard that a recent Supreme Court case out of Montana could set a precedent for the Oklahoma school. The conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in that case that a publicly funded K-12 scholarship program could apply to religious schools and it didn't violate the Constitution. But supporters argue that the ruling should apply similarly to religious and private charter schools. But the opponents of all this, including Oklahoma's own attorney general, who is a Republican, are arguing for separation. Essentially, they say separation of church and state means the new school shouldn't even exist. Regardless, there is sure to be a years-long legal fight over all of this, and it could end up again in the conservative U.S. Supreme Court. Does your reporting indicate whether this is intended to be a test case to see if the high court would greenlight religious public schools? Yes, absolutely. Um, Catholic officials say they want to improve access to Catholic education around the state. You know, there are hundreds of small towns around Oklahoma that they might have a parish, but they don't have a school. So families have to drive hours both ways to get a Catholic education. 
Um, so it's a big deal for them. It's also a revenue generator. The state would essentially pay the tuition of all of these students to get a Catholic education, even if it's virtual. And so this was a, approved by the um, virtual statewide virtual charter school board, and it's appointed by the governor and other GOP leaders around the state. So this was a highly political move in favor of uh, school choice movements here in Oklahoma. So the school is meant to be called St. Isidore's. When might it start operating? So the goal is to have it start operating in fall 2024. And the church estimates that they're going to have hundreds of students in the in the beginning. Um, but that legal challenge, uh, it's, it's sure to come. And organizations like the ACLU have vowed to sue the state to block the school from ever enrolling students. Um, one interesting note is that the Republican Attorney General of Oklahoma, he's considered to be a more moderate Republican, says he doesn't like this school and he actually won't be providing legal support to the state to defend it. That's Robbie Korth and he's the news director at KOSU in Oklahoma City. Robbie, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. The two biggest organizations in pro golf are merging. The PGA Tour has run big tournaments for generations, but it faced a challenge from an upstart with a lot of money. That would be the Saudi Arabia-backed Live Tour. That's L-I-V, pronounced as we said, live like live large, which the tour did, offering eye-popping paychecks to attract players from the PGA. Zach Helfand of The New Yorker joins us now with the latest. Good morning. Morning. These two tours were fighting. Why did they merge? So this was something that came as a big surprise to almost everyone involved. Even some of the star players didn't know that this was coming. Uh, but it's, it's also one of those things that from a business standpoint, uh, a lot of people with the benefit of hindsight could say, oh, yeah, we could see why this happened. The Saudis wanted a golf tour. They wanted power and prestige, and they had a lot of money. And the PGA Tour was always happy to take a lot of money, and they had a golf tour to offer, and they had power and prestige to offer. So each side really had what the other wanted. I want to understand, is this a merger of equals, or is it a takeover? <laughs> That's a good question. It depends how you view it. Uh, they're establishing a new entity, uh, which will oversee LIVE. Uh, there's a question of whether LIVE will live on, uh, mm -hmm. and it, it will also oversee the PGA Tour. Uh, the PGA Tour gets, it's probably going to be about $3 billion from the Saudis, um, and they get to retain voting rights control over the board of directors, uh, but the head of the Saudi Public Investment Fund gets to be the chairman of the board. Ah, okay, so uh, a Saudi choice to be chairman, but the PGA Tour forces have the majority of the board seats. That's what you're saying? Yeah, it's kind of a power-sharing agreement. The PGA okay. Tour retains more control, though, with the voting rights. So I have to ask about the reputation of Saudi Arabia and human rights abuses there, which uh, golfers have noted. Uh, Phil Mickelson, one of the biggest stars, said last year that he viewed Live as a Saudi vehicle to improve the reputation of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, conceal his poor record on human rights. How are pro golfers answering those kinds of accusations now that they've joined forces with the Saudis? <laughs> They're happy to gloss over it. Uh, once they are part of the Saudi outfit. 
so it, it's one of those things that I don't know that most golfers really care that much about. Uh, some of them do. A lot of them use it uh, if it's convenient. I, I think the the reputation laundering aspect of this has been a little bit overblown. Uh, from the people I've talked to who know MBS or speak to MBS, he knows that a golf league isn't going to uh, wash away uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, for example. But they're using it as a business and as an economic tool. They want to transform their economy, become a tourist destination, get one up over the Emiratis, uh, who also have golf interests. And, and this really serves that need. So we'll see a lot more pro golfers in Saudi Arabia, is what you're telling me. Very likely. Zach Helfand of The New Yorker, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. It's Leila Faldil from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. We're in a short June fundraiser. Our goal is for 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. And we're asking you to act now because there are only 14 minutes or so to go in a triple match being offered by a group of WBUR listeners. That means your monthly contribution is tripled for a year. You will have triple the impact for WBUR and you will be guaranteeing WBUR's future because listeners are the largest share of our funding. So give at WBUR.org. Take advantage of this match or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of the Endless Thread podcast, Amory Sievertson. Good morning, Rupa. And man, Layla Fadel really just nailed it when she <laughs> called WBUR an oasis public radio is an oasis away from all of the noise, all of the misinformation. And, you know, when, when people ask us what is the best way to support WBUR, the answer is very simple. Become a monthly 
donor, a, a monthly giver, a sustainer of WBUR. You give a little bit of money every month, and we know that you have our backs so that we can have yours. That is truly the best way to support WBUR, and in doing so, you're supporting your whole community who relies on WBUR, the people who can give to support it and the people who aren't able to give to support it. And that's why this generous group of listeners stepped up to triple any con- any contributions that come in in the next 13 minutes. Now, the, uh, these are monthly sustaining contributions. So if you can give $10 a month, they will make that $30 a month to WBUR for the next year. If you can give a larger gift, if you can give $50 a month to WBUR, they're going to make it $150. If you can give $25, they are going to make it $75 every single month for a year. Every monthly gift will be tripled just for the next 12 minutes. So do your part right now. They will do theirs, and we will do ours for you. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. You can do it either way. Just do it now. You know this. We all benefit when WBUR stays strong. Making a monthly contribution, like Amory said, especially during this triple match, is the best thing you can do to help because listeners are responsible for WBUR's future. Not the government, not corporations. Listeners are the largest share of our funding. Listeners who specifically give monthly. So we know we have support in the future and we can do the planning we need to do to bring you the reporting you depend on from us. There's only uh, 11 minutes. 11. You're so much yeah. better at the math That's than me. okay. You Ele- nailed it. <laughs> 11 minutes left. Be a reliable su- source of support for WBUR and step up to keep your community informed. Take responsibility for making sure this service continues. Monthly contributions are the most effective way to help WBUR. Act now while your contribution will be tripled so that tr- for the impact on WBR will be tripled. Give at WBR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, we need you right now. We need people stepping up and saying, hey, I have your back day in and day out the same way that WBUR has yours. We're asking you to be a steady source of support. Whatever amount you can give every month, these generous listeners are going to make it three times as much. Your $20 a month becomes $60 a month. Your $50 a month becomes $150 a month. Whatever you can give every month, do it right now. It will be tripled just for the next 10 minutes. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. At Pride celebrations this month, you might notice more religious organizations handing out swag. That's because of an interfaith effort to push back against anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and legislation. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose has this report. At the Pride Expo in Santa Monica, California, six houses of worship, 
five churches and a synagogue have booths all lined up in a row. Do you identify Jewish? Or? I am. I am. Among them is Bet Haim Hadashim. Thank you. What's the um, policy of spouses who haven't converted? Hi, everybody's welcome. Answering questions and handing out stickers that say Happy Pride above a rainbow Star of David is Rabbi Jillian Cameron. I think it's really important for us to be just as visible if possible so that people know out in the world that the the loud voices um, who are saying horrible things to our community are not the only religious voices out there. Because those voices take their emotional toll, Cameron says, even in a place as progressive as California. She remembers a trans person coming to her nervously, wanting to talk about converting to Judaism. But they were so convinced and sure that I was going to say no, that I was going to judge them for any number of things. And when I said, of course, you know, please come learn with me, come be part of our community, come figure it out with us, um, they burst into tears because that was the first time someone had said, you can have both of these things. You don't have to suppress a piece of you to exist. It's no longer unusual to find a welcoming synagogue, but the same can't be said of other religious groups. But, you know, once you get another target table like the one, like that one there. In South Los Angeles, Sammy Haynes is arranging the sanctuary for Sunday services at Vision Church, a black Pentecostal congregation. He says a relationship with God seemed impossible a few years ago after he came out as gay. But I wanted to be authentically myself. And when that happened, I lost a lot of my friends and connections because the church, of course, frowned upon that. For Haynes, it was a low time. But while visiting friends in Atlanta, they invited him to a church that specifically celebrated LGBTQ people. It was a connection that led to a change in vocation. Now, Pastor Haynes is showing up for his community here in South L.A. And I heard clear from God and I always knew that I needed to create a space for all people to encounter God, no matter how you show up. During this Pride Month, Haynes' calendar is full from interfaith services to pride parades to a congregational block party. So I'm excited for this month to help somebody move from their Egypt to their exodus because liberation is not only in the air for us at Vision Los Angeles, but liberation is in the air for the entire community. More pro-gay God talk at Pride is no accident. It's a national initiative of the Interfaith Alliance involving Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, and others. It's called Faith for Pride, meant to counter the message of anti-LGBTQ rights legislation in state houses. We are not going to let this happen to our LGBTQ siblings, not on our watch. Baptist minister Paul Rauschenbusch is president of Interfaith Alliance. We're saying we need to organize, we need to specifically fight back against these bills, and we need to rally religious communities and the religious voice to say no. Rauschenbusch says while the agenda is political, it's also a personal message for queer people. Don't feel like you have this choice between your sexuality or your gender and your religious tradition. There are people out there who love you, who respect you, and who will welcome you and help you thrive. It's good news Rin Kayla says she hears as she visits the booths at Santa Monica Pride. Whether it's being Jewish or Protestant or Pentecostal or Catholic, to believe in something greater than ourselves seems to me to be important. And this is the representation that says we have to stop being afraid. And start being encouraged, Kayla says, by voices of faith speaking out for her rights. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at sailgracebailey.com. Mostly overcast today with upper 60s and a slight chance of rain around mid-afternoon. Cloudy and low 50s tonight. Overcast and mid-60s tomorrow with more showers possible in the afternoon. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 755. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. Robin Young there, one of the great, longtime, respected voices you listen to on WBUR. This is Morning Edition on WBUR. We're in our short June fundraiser. We're asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. We're asking you to do that fast because there are only four minutes to go in a triple match being offered by a generous group of WBUR listeners. They're encouraging you to come on as monthly contributors because monthly contributions is how we plan and budget. We need to know what's coming in so we know what we're working with so we can plan the reporting that you depend on, that you expect from us. This fact-based, unbiased, independent journalism doesn't happen without your support. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm here with Amory Sievertson. Hey, Rupa. You know that expression, work smarter, not harder. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I was like, uh, I think uh, uh, Uncle Scrooge said that. To this? No. <laughs> well, this is a perfect example of that because for the next three minutes, then the next three minutes, your money will be tripled. You will be giving smarter, not harder. When you give ten dollars a month to WBUR, it becomes thirty dollars a month. When you give twenty dollars a month, it becomes sixty dollars a month. If you can give a larger amount every month, if you could give, say, ooh, a hundred dollars a month, that will become three hundred dollars a month just for giving in the next now just two minutes to go here and how is this even possible you ask because a group of generous listeners stepped up and said hey we need more monthly supporters we need more people sustaining WBUR and we want to encourage them to do that in whatever amount every month feels right for them so this is your chance to give smarter not harder give $15 a month it will become $45 a month for the next year just because you did it in the next two minutes when your contribution is tripled. Have your impact tripled. Know that WBUR is protected three times as much with your gift just by doing it now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org is the way to do that. That was a very effective use of that saying. Oh, thank Thank you. you for that. Think about how much you count on WBUR every day, on the radio, online, with podcasts, in newsletters, 
all the ways you keep up with what's happening in Boston, Washington, and the world with WBUR's help. Support that work that you depend on. Get your contribution tripled and make sure WBUR is there for everyone's future, your future, your family's future, your community's future. We know now informed communities are the foundations of democracy, and we need to keep those foundations strong. So go to WBUR.org to give or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you give $10 a month right now, your contribution will be tripled, and you'll also get an Eton Radio as our thanks. Normally, it's $20 a month, so this is a great deal. And you'll be helping WBUR secure a strong future. If you've ever lived through an extended power outage, you know how important it is to have a self-powered radio to stay connected to vital news. That's what you'll get with this Eton Radio. And at the same time, you will have the satisfaction of knowing that you are keeping WBUR going. You are powering WBUR into the future. You are being that reliable support for us. Go to WBUR to give or call 1-800-909-9287. It really is true. WBUR only exists because of other people who gave generously. Today, it's your turn. Right now, it's your time. You can have your money tripled for WBUR when you call right now, just in the next 60 seconds, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former Vice President Mike Pence has formally declared that he is running for the Republican presidential nomination. He announced the news this morning on a social media video. It'd be easy to stay on the sidelines, but that's not how I was raised. That's why today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for President of the United States. Pence joins a crowded GOP field. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is expected to announce he is seeking the nomination today. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie did the same yesterday, and they will all face former President Donald Trump. Nearly a dozen conservative Republicans blocked a pair of GOP bills in the House from advancing yesterday in an effort to send a message to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. The failure to advance a pair of Republican bills that would ramp up gas stove protections was a publicly humiliating blow for McCarthy and comes amid intra-party discord around the debt ceiling deal brokered by the Speaker and President Biden. Driving the revolt was discontent over the recently passed debt ceiling legislation and an accusation by Freedom Caucus member Andrew Clyde of Georgia that GOP leaders had threatened to prevent a bill of his from coming to the floor unless he supported advancing the debt legislation. House leadership has pushed back on that allegation. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, the Capitol. The National Weather Service has issued several air quality alerts today. Smoke from wildfires in Canada, including dozens of blazes in Quebec, is flowing south. There are alerts up in the northeast, along the mid-Atlantic, and as far south as North and South Carolina. There are air quality alerts posted for parts of Ohio, too. 
Russian forces are continuing to shell southern Ukraine, including areas suffering from flooding after a dam was destroyed. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, civilian areas are among the hardest hit. The Russians fired more than 300 shells into southern Ukraine, including about 30 on the city of Kherson, according to Ukrainian military officials. The attacks came as large parts of Kherson were being inundated Tuesday by rushing waters after a dam was destroyed to the north of the river city. The official said some Russian attacks took place in residential areas and one person was killed and another injured. Many homes and streets were flooded, forcing residents to evacuate. Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other for the collapse of the dam. The Russians captured the dam early last year and have controlled it ever since. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. The Vatican says that Pope Francis has entered a Rome hospital for treatment. He will have major abdominal surgery. Previously, Francis had part of his large intestine removed. The Pope is also 86 years old. He will spend several days in the hospital. You're listening to NPR News. From Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Some lawmakers on Beacon Hill are pushing for legislation to impose fees on real estate transactions. WBOR's Ninjor and Wameka reports it's an effort to generate money for affordable housing in places like Boston and the Cape and Islands. Some lawmakers and advocates say there just isn't enough affordable housing and they need money to create it. Transfer fees on high-cost real estate could help with that. State Senator Joe Comerford represents several communities in Western Mass. This came about powered by communities saying, we want to create affordable housing. We don't have the capital to do it. So therefore, enter in the local option transfer fee. And it all goes into a pool for affordable housing. But opponents say a new real estate tax is not the best way to raise funds for affordable housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Boston police are investigating a car crash involving Mayor Michelle Wu. The mayor was the passenger in a police cruiser yesterday when it collided with another car in an intersection in Hyde Park. The mayor's office says no one sustained major injuries. There's a new coalition of Latino leaders across Massachusetts. The group Unidos in Power hopes to amplify the voices of Latinos in the state. People from the business, policy, and philanthropy worlds will be involved. Joe Betancourt is a co-chair of the committee. He says the group is still in its startup stages. Our key focus is to not uh, really engage in operations. We have a lot of great assets in our communities that are doing great work. Our main focus is to unite our voice uh, for advocacy and to maximize all those different efforts in benefit of our community. Betancourt says he hopes the group can work on housing advocacy and civic leadership. A Massachusetts attorney will be a top war crimes prosecutor at The Hague. Kim West will lead prosecutions for the Kosovo War Crimes Tribunal. West previously led the Criminal Bureau for the state's attorney general's office. She also worked as an assistant district attorney in Plymouth County. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. 
OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox began their six-game road trip last night with a win. They beat the Cleveland Guardians 5-4. to four. The teams will play again tonight. An air quality alert remains in effect statewide today because of smoke from Canadian wildfires. Morning sun will give way to clouds with some afternoon showers possible. It'll be in the upper 60s, mostly cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Cloudy with showers again tomorrow in the 60s. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers or at smartmouth.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from morning edition to all things considered, from stories online at WBUR.org, to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That was the host of our podcast, our daily podcast, Common, Daryl C. Murphy, He's one of the many, he and the common are one of the many ways we bring you the news in all the ways you want to receive it these days. Right now, you're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, whether you're listening on 90.9, on the app, online, um, or if you've asked your smart speaker to play it. Any way you're listening, you're getting what you need to know every morning. You turn to us. Now we're coming back to you and asking for your support. If you're just getting going and tuning in this morning, we want to let you know that we're in our June fundraiser, and this is a short one. It ends at the end of the day tomorrow, but we need you to contribute monthly today, if you can. Don't leave us hanging until the last minute. We're asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors, and we're asking for monthly contributions because that is how... WBUR plans for its future. We need to know what's coming in so we can do the reporting that you need. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of the Endless Thread podcast, Amory Saverson. Good morning. And, you know, think of it this way. It's it's kind of the same way that you would probably like to know how much money you are going to make every month, how much money will be coming in, mm-hmm. you know, to, to you every month. WBUR just wants the same peace of mind. We want to know that you have our backs, that we can still be here for you, that we can bring you all of the news and information. We know how much it takes to do that, and we're asking you to support it because we don't exist without you. So Martha Biebinger, one of our incredible reporters, Decades of experience, so wise and wonderful. Um, she is is here to tell you a little bit more about why a monthly contribution in particular matters so much. There's this stat that I hear again and again while I'm covering the drug overdose crisis, and it says that only about 20% of people addicted to opioids have gotten medications that will basically help them stop using the opioids, that will curb cravings and save their life, potentially. So I filed a story about researchers testing a way to make addiction medications much more available on demand in pharmacies. It would be just like going for a flu shot. One of the people in that study is a guy named Mike. He's a longtime heroin user, and he saw an ad for the pharmacy treatment program one day while he was just waiting for a bus. 
where I was very gloomy. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to go back on drugs. Uh, I happened to see the sign. It was a godsend. Patients like Mike were 72% more likely to continue treatment that started in a pharmacy as compared to patients who went to more traditional treatment programs and got the medications there. I talked to the study's lead author, her name is Tracy Green, and she says the results show that pharmacies are places where we could expand addiction treatment. We need a lot more if we're gonna try to turn the tide in the opioid crisis, so the pharmacists are, are at the ready. Well, after the story aired, both here in Massachusetts and across the country, Tracy Green told me that the American Medical Association called her and other groups wanted to talk about how they could be involved. She said four states took up legislation or made other changes to expand the role of pharmacists in addiction treatment. And she says the ripple effects continue. So I really feel like this is why WBUR is here, to tell stories that make a difference and sometimes save someone's life. That is such a great example of why people support WBUR because it has an impact on that, because it does reporting that you don't find anywhere else that takes time, that takes thought, that takes dedication. That's why we work here, and that's why we are asking for your support this morning. Listeners are the biggest share of WBUR's support, and you need to be responsible for WBUR's future. Making a monthly contribution is the best thing you can do to help. We all benefit when WBUR stays strong. What Martha Biebinger, that example of that story right there, that was a great example of that. Listeners who give monthly help us the most because we know we have support in the future and we can do the planning we need to do to, to bring you that kind of reporting. So please, Step up, do what you can for WBUR because we are doing everything that we can do for you every single day. And we need to be able to depend on you into the future. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's it, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Protect the journalism, the storytelling, everything you get from us. Be there for us and we'll be there for you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston with LCD sound system, Jamie XX, Idols, and more at the stage at Suffolk Downs, Saturday, June 17th. More at ResetConcertSeries.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. In a moment, we have the story of the singer behind the girl from Ipanema. But first, former Vice President Mike Pence has launched his presidential campaign. He is celebrating his birthday in Iowa today. Pence is the latest to join a growing field of 2024 GOP candidates, and he's got some familiar conservative talking points. We will kick these liberal meddlers out of our gun stores and out of your lives. But he also has a task that's unique to him, explaining how he's a better choice than the man he governed alongside for four years. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell is in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey there, Kelsey. Hi, good morning. How are things in Iowa? 
Well, it is presidential season out here, and, you know, Iowa's actually a pretty popular place right now. Uh, Pork Expo is kicking off across town with the Pence presidential campaign, you know, on the other side. (laughs) All right. Yeah, you know, all that kind of makes getting a hotel room or a rental car pretty tough, but moments like these happen a lot in Iowa. Their caucuses are typically the first voting test in a presidential primary, and Pence is already spending a lot of time here. He was just here last week riding a motorcycle at a big event with other candidates, and they will be back a lot. The caucus process in Iowa is really known for bringing out engaged voters. And Pence had success in 2016, appealing specifically to evangelicals. That's part of why he was chosen to be the vice presidential candidate. And that might have some advantage for him if he's trying to appeal to traditional engaged elements of the GOP here in Iowa. Okay, so he's appealing to a base group. He's trying to have some fun, but he faces a serious question, which is how would he distinguish himself from the former president who he served as vice president for four years. Well, you know, so far, he sounds a lot like the Mike Pence who ran in the 2016 primary, which is actually pretty interesting because a lot has changed in American politics since then and within the Republican Party in particular. You know, he talks about free trade and fair markets, uh, Christian family values and conservatism. He talks about his opposition to abortion. But what he doesn't really talk much about is Trump. One thing he does talk about is respecting the Constitution, which is meant to be a shot at Trump. But he doesn't really talk about formative moments like January 6th, when that pro-Trump mob attacked the Capitol, including people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Pence has said that Trump was wrong about January 6th and criticized him in the past. But that is not the central message of his campaign, at least not so far. Okay, so so at least they differ on the the hanging vice president's uh, issue. But when we look across the nearly a dozen people running for the nomination, have they done much to distinguish themselves from each other? I mean, I think we kind of have to take them all as different examples. You know, we're even seeing the the field expand this week. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie got in yesterday, and North Dakota Governor um, Doug Burgum is planning to get in today. You know, they're both long shots, but I want to talk about Christie in particular because he is interesting. He's aggressively targeting Trump. He's doing what Pence really hasn't. He's calling out Trump for all of the ways he altered the party, and he's really set on taking Trump down. It isn't clear that Christie has the support to actually do that, but he wants to be a factor in the debates and he wants to be an aggressive Trump critic. You know, that's really not what we're seeing from a lot of others in this race, though, as I mentioned about Pence. Trump is certainly a bigger factor in the polls than he appears in their speeches. He's very popular with Republican voters, and just like in 2016, Republican challengers in this field don't really seem to know how to talk about him. But it's early and a lot can happen. Lots can change, and Trump is still facing significant legal jeopardy in multiple states and in the District of Columbia. You know, this is just the start, and these candidates are going to start bumping into each other and establishing messages about the campaign as it wears on. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell is in Des Moines. Kelsey, I hope you get a chance to drop by the Pork Expo in addition to the presidential announcement. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. In Richmond, Virginia, something that's happening all too often, a joyous event, in this case a high school graduation, abruptly turning to terror when a shooter opened fire. Seven people were shot, at least two have died, including a student who had just graduated. Jad Khalil of VPM News has this report. Tuesday afternoon, seniors from Huguenot High School walked across the stage to get their diplomas. They then headed outside to a park across the street to celebrate with family and friends. That's when the gunfire began. Obviously, uh, this should have been a safe space. The people should have felt safe at a graduation. 
Interim Richmond Police Chief Rick Edwards described the chaotic scene. He said hundreds of people started running in every direction as the shots continued over and over again. Some were injured as they fled, including a nine-year-old girl who was hit by a car. And uh, it's just uh, incredibly tragic that someone decided to bring a gun to, to this incident and, and rain terror on, on our community. A 19-year-old man was arrested carrying four handguns. Edwards says the suspect knew one of the victims. Families and students hunkered down in nearby buildings for hours. School administrators didn't even take off their graduation robes, including Superintendent Jason Cameras, who spoke to reporters afterwards. I'm tired of seeing people get shot, our kids get shot, and I beg of the entire community to stop, to just stop. Our kids can't take it, our teachers can't take it, our families can't take it anymore. Cameras was emotional and appeared to be holding back tears. Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney seemed to be too. The question that comes in my mind right now is, is nothing sacred any longer? 2021 saw 90 homicides in Richmond, a 15-year high. The number of youth killed by firearms in the Virginia capital was recently three times the national rate, according to Mayor Stoney. This should not be happening anywhere whether it's in Richmond, whether it's in Virginia, whether it's in the United States, this should not be happening anywhere. Richmond closed its schools on Wednesday and postponed the rest of the week's high school graduations. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond, Virginia. Next, we have a story behind one of the most covered pop songs in history. Tall and thin and young and lovely, the girl from Ipanema goes walking, and when she passes, each one she passes goes, ah. The girl from Ipanema popularized Brazilian bossa nova in the United States and beyond thanks to the singing of Astrud Gilberto. It was the first song she ever recorded. It brought her worldwide recognition, but not royalties. Gilberto died Monday at the age of 83. NPR's Carrie Kahn is in Ipanema, Brazil. She's the reporter from Ipanema. There have been many versions of who asked us through Gilberto to sing in English, the girl from Ipanema, but she says it was her husband, the bossa nova icon Joao Gilberto, who suggested it while they were in New York in 1963, recording with the jazz great Stan Getz. When she walks, she's like a samba that swings so cool and sways so gently. Gilberto was said to have the best English in the room that day. Derisively, Getz took credit for her participation, even cracked at the time that she was just a housewife who got a break. But after that first recording with her husband, she recorded the song solo. But each day when she walks to the sea, she looks straight ahead, not at he. And in a 1978 interview on WHYY's Fresh Air, Gilberto said what came next was surprising. I had fun doing it and I enjoyed uh, being part of it, but I have never envisioned it as becoming an important thing in my life or 
a beginning of a career or anything like it. The song would catapult Gilberto and Brazil's bossa nova music onto the American scene. She won the Grammy's Record of the Year in 1964 and after splitting with her husband embarked on a solo career recording dozens of albums. Guitarist Paul Ricci, who confirmed her death from her son Marcelo, says Gilberto was a champion of the New York 1960s and 70s jazz scene and her soulful sound influenced many artists. Astrid was the first pop radio voice to sing in that soft microphone, intimate, sensual fashion that engendered everything. Among those music historians say she influenced artists from Karen Carpenter to Sade. While she was a hit in the U.S., which she later called home, journalist and bossa nova historian Hui Castro says Brazilians were not kind to her. Brazil was cruel to her and didn't accept her success, but she wisely never looked back, he says, and made her life and career in the U.S. These days, Brazilians and tourists alike fondly remember her and her song, especially in the namesake Ipanema neighborhood. Rafael Jimenezes plays his banjo for tips outside the Girl from Ipanema restaurant and bar, a popular stop on the Rio tourist trail. José Rodríguez has been waiting tables inside for 15 years and points to the one where two Brazilian songwriters pen the song for a team they like to watch walk by. Most days, he says, he too was asked to sing the song for tourist tips. A block away on Ipanema Beach, where vendors sell everything from cookies to strong drinks, Peruvian tourist Leo Rivas was pouring back a caipirinha with his feet in the sand and ready to show off his Portuguese rendition. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça, que é a menina que vem que passa. Rivas says he's saddened by her passing, but as Gilberto herself said when talking about the song's original success, people need romance and something dreamy for distraction. Still true, some 60 years later. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Ipanema, Brazil. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Hi, I'm Cristela Guerra. I'm Amelia Mason. I'm Ariel Gray. And I'm Andrea Shea. We're WBUR's arts and culture reporters. Every year, we fan out to find emerging artists of color for our series, The Makers. It's a lot of work, but we're honored to share their boundless creativity, which comes in so many forms. You would have known that I wasn't strong enough to hold on. If you'd have loved me when I was with you, 
There's music, photography, sculpture, dance, storytelling, even. Yes, motorcycles. The Makers is just one of the ways we help you discover and learn about the groundbreaking artists in our midst. Boston's vibrant art scene is crucial to seeing and understanding ourselves in ways nothing else can. I think that is the power of art, that it's like an alchemy. You can take even your struggles and you can convert it into something beautiful that other people can experience and, and be fulfilled by. Your support today will help us introduce you to the next maker. The next painter. The next sculptor. The next musician. I'm not just a boy, I'm a man. I'm not just a man, I'm a god. I'm not just a god, I'm a maker. So many of the great stories you hear there on Morning Edition. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR right now. We're in our June fundraiser, and we're asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. Monthly contributions are the best way to support WBUR and guarantee its future. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism because it's the largest share of our funding. Be one of those listeners and show us you value WBUR and want to make sure it's there in the future. And it has the ability to report without fear or favor. We all benefit when WBUR stays strong. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the host of the Endless Thread podcast, Amory Sievertson. Good morning. And something that I've been thinking about, Rupa, is... You know, when we're asking you to protect WBUR, we're asking you to protect something that is that is really at the foundation of everything else that you do, that you might do today, you might do tomorrow, you might do in your lifetime. You know, it starts with having a strong fact-based source of information and, and news that you can trust. You can't change the world unless you know what's happening in it. You can't you can't change your community, improve your community unless you know what's happening in your community, what needs improving. You know, you don't know what you don't know about the world unless you listen. And you do every day to WBUR. You count on us to help make sense of everything for you. And that that informs how you live your life. So protect that. Don't take that for granted. You know, we're there for you every day. We're asking you to be there for us with a monthly gift, a monthly gift that lets us know that you have our back, that we can exist, we can keep doing this, we don't need to rely on major corporations, you know, we don't need to start running commercials, we can stay exactly as we are, but only with you. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. You can go to WBUR.org. The average monthly gift is $16 a month. So if that feels right for you, great. Start today giving that $16 a month and having our back. Or $10 a month, or $20 a month, or $50, or $100. You know what's right for you. Just do it now. Supporting WBUR will give you a sense of satisfaction and pride and when you give $10 a month, it will also get you an Eton radio. Usually these are $20 a month, so this is a real big deal. This is a handy green and black hand-cranked radio that you will be so grateful for when the power goes out. You'll be ready for emergencies and disasters. It's water-resistant. It also has solar power charging, a USB phone charger, a LED, LED flashlight. You can use it to charge your phone and 
And most importantly, maybe you can use it to stay connected to WBUR because you know we will have everything you need to know during an emergency. So give, keep WBUR going, give it a strong future, show WBUR. We have your support because we are there for you every day. And when you do that, when you give $10 a month, also get this great radio that will be there for you during disasters. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You woke up with WBUR this morning. Maybe you're having a little breakfast. Okay, you have to pay for that breakfast, right? Or, but are you paying for what feeds your mind? Are you paying for your brain food? Give a little bit every month. $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month. Sustain us the way that we sustain you, the way that breakfast sustains you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at myprompt.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The field of Republican presidential candidates is expanding. Former Vice President Mike Pence officially entered the race this morning. His 2024 campaign released a video announcement ahead of Pence's afternoon speech in Iowa. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is also in the race. He announced his Republican campaign in the Wall Street Journal ahead of an event in Fargo later today. NPR's Giles Snyder says former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie entered the race for the Republican nomination yesterday during an event in Manchester, New Hampshire. The former Republican governor answered questions from town hall participants for nearly two hours, admitting that he's made mistakes. I've made judgments at times that were wrong. And I've trusted people I shouldn't have trusted. Christie says he's made plenty of mistakes, one being his support of former President Donald Trump. Christie is a former Trump advisor, but has since broken with him over his refusal to accept the results of the 2020 election. And Christie is now presenting himself as an alternative and finding fault with Republican rivals who avoid direct confrontation with the former president. Trial Snyder, NPR News. Former Colorado State Senator Mike Johnston will be Denver's next mayor. The Democrat won yesterday's mayoral runoff election to succeed Michael Hancock. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Quincy-based Compass Medical is filing for bankruptcy. The health care provider shut down its six offices without warning one week ago. Earlier this week, those affected by the closure filed a class action lawsuit against the company. They say Compass was negligent when it made people scramble to find new health care providers. It's unclear how the bankruptcy filing will affect the lawsuit. 
New Hampshire's Attorney General's office says it'll appeal a judge's dismissal of civil rights charges against a local neo-Nazi group. As Todd Bookman reports, this is the same group that brought racist banners to the South Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade last year. Last summer, members of the white supremacist group NSC-131 hung a banner off of a highway overpass in Portsmouth. It read, Keep New England White. That prompted Attorney General John Formella to bring a civil rights action against the group and two of its leaders. The state alleged the group trespassed by entering the bridge and hanging the banner without a permit, and that they were motivated to do so by racial animus. Lawyers for the neo-Nazi group countered that the group removed the banner as soon as they were told it was illegally displayed and that its message was protected on free speech grounds. In a new ruling, a superior court judge from Rockingham County is siding with NSC 131, writing that while their conduct is reprehensible, the state's legal challenge relies on an overly broad reading of the law. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is filing a resolution today recognizing June as Pride Month in Boston. He says it's critical that the city demonstrates support for LGBTQ neighbors considering the uptick in threats of violence against the community recently. This weekend, Boston will host its first citywide Pride Parade since 2019. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. The Red Sox staged a late-game rally last night in Cleveland. They beat the Guardians 5-4. to The two teams will meet again tonight. Highs in the upper 60s today under skies that will grow overcast. An air quality alert remains in effect statewide because of smoke from Canadian wildfires. There's a slight chance of showers around mid-afternoon. Tonight, still cloudy and low 50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again and highs in the mid-60s. We'll have another chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 60 degrees in Boston, and you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The women's hockey coach at Harvard is retiring after nearly three decades leading the team. And Katie Stone's decision to leave comes amid an investigation into allegations of her abuse, hazing, and racist behavior toward the team. Joining us to talk more about this is Katie Strang, a senior investigative writer with The Athletic. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So what do you make of the timing of Katie Stone's decision to retire? Yeah, it's interesting, um, to say the least. You know, from the outset, um, Harvard has said that they were aiming to complete the investigation into the allegations that surfaced in our article and the article in the Boston Globe um, by the end of the academic term, which concluded recently. So in that respect, it's, it's not a surprise that we're seeing some level of, you know, resolution and clarity on her future. Right now, you know, there are certain important points in the hockey season, calendar, recruiting, itinerary, um, 
where the school probably needed to provide some clarity. Would you mind reminding us again, what are the accusations against Stone? Sure. Katie Stone um, is accused of essentially fostering a toxic environment within the program in which players were routinely pitted against each other, you know, subject to certain behaviors ranging from body shaming, microaggressions, attacks, insults, where, you know, there was insensitivity to both injuries, mental health issues, where there was hazing, um, where there was homophobia. So I would say a wide-ranging base of allegations. And you reported yesterday that Harvard says its internal investigation into Stone is complete. What do we know about that investigation? Well, we know that it started in about the third week of March, not long after our story dropped. Um, we know that they retained a third-party law firm in Jenner and Block, which is a pretty prominent law firm that has led other high-profile external investigations, most notably um, the one into the Chicago Blackhawks in 2021 that dealt with how they potentially mishandled sexual assault allegations from the decade prior. Um, We know that investigators reached out to current players um, and staff members and that they did make contact with um, some Uh, players that had left the program. And we do know just from speaking to people who have spoken to investigators, you know, that they were willing to field any sort of feedback from players that wanted to reach out and share information and were willing to do so while providing players anonymity and confidentiality, Um, but that they didn't do, you know, sort of an active outreach and digging into attrition rates or or players that had left the program prematurely or anything like that. So essentially, they didn't turn anyone away, but it doesn't sound like they did a ton of proactive investigation. To put this in a bit of larger context, we've heard stories like these for decades in men's sports. Does this story indicate this is also a widespread problem in women's sports, especially at the college level? You know, I'm hesitant to extrapolate, you know, one specific story and, you know, say that it's widespread amongst, you know, women's sports. But, you know, I think in sports in general, you know, I I think it would be wrong to assume that, you know, misconduct, malfeasance, mistreatment only occurs in men's sports. Katie Strang from The Athletic, thank you so much for breaking this story down for us. Thank you for having me. Hollywood's TV and film business is still working out its future in a summer defined by labor contracts and picket lines and a halt to most productions. This week, directors reached a deal with the studios and actors authorized a strike. Hollywood writers are still on the picket lines. NPR's Mendeley Del Barco catches us up. On Monday night, nearly 98% of voting SAG-AFTRA members authorized their leaders to call a strike against the studios as a negotiating tactic with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Hollywood actors, voiceover artists, stunt performers, and others in the union are hoping for a new contract, giving them more streaming residuals and protections from artificial intelligence. 
As their negotiations begin, many actors have been joining striking writers on picket lines in solidarity. Meanwhile, the Directors Guild of America struck a tentative deal that still needs approval by its members. It would give directors and managers a 12 percent wage increase over the next three years, a ban on live ammunition on sets, and a promise that AI cannot replace their work. The actors and writers' unions officially congratulated the DGA, but said they'll continue making their own demands. Here's Chris Kaiser, the negotiating committee co-chair for the Writers Guild of America. DGA was likely to make a deal on this. You know, it's in their culture to make a deal, and we are very hopeful they made a really good deal for their membership, and we have to negotiate our own deal. And if we end up walking with other people walking alongside us, we will be strong enough to get what we need anyway. Outside Amazon Studios yesterday afternoon, Clark Gregg walked the picket line. He's a writer, director, and actor best known for the Avengers and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So he's in the WGA, the DGA, and SAG-AFTRA. I just wish all three unions would just all strike together. And I know their concerns are different, but I just think that there's so many ways that the corporations are aligned and in sync and fixing their prices on what they're willing to pay. I just don't know why the unions don't do the same. Greg said the new streaming model has created less stable work for everyone in Hollywood. If we don't want to be essentially gig workers, it's now or never to fight this stuff. But I also am trying to remain optimistic that there are human beings in these companies who get this. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Sievertson, and we are asking you to become a monthly contributor and become part of the community that ensures WBUR's future. You depend on WBUR to bring you unbiased, independent journalism, and to be your companion as you get going in the morning. So we're asking you to be part of this short June fundraiser. We have a goal of 700 people becoming monthly contributors. You can be one of those people. And when you give monthly, you'll have the peace of mind that you're supporting this service that you depend on, and you'll be giving WBUR the peace of mind of knowing we can plan for the future. So give at WBUR.org or call one 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, I think, in the world today from everything that happens in politics to climate change, my goodness. And it, it can be very easy to feel like 
Well, gosh, what can I do? What can I, one person out there, do? Well, I'll tell you right now, the best thing that you can do, truly, for your community, for WBUR, is to give monthly. Give a little bit of money every month. When you do that, you know that you have the news and information, the fact-based, uh, you know, fact-checked, thoughtful, um, well-researched, uh, compelling storytelling that informs your life. And you know that you're giving that to everyone in this greater region who relies on it. And really the nation, because WBUR has several national programs that people really count on, too, like On Point and Here and Now. You're giving that to everyone. You're giving that to yourself. And it matters that you do it. It's, it's, it's a small thing that you can do that really has this outsized impact by empowering us all, equipping us all with the truth, helping us combat all of the misinformation, helping us kind of process what's happening in the world and to figure out what we want to do about it. But it starts with your news and information source, and that's WBUR. You protect it with maybe $20 a month, $20 a month for WBUR. WBUR. Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe that feels more comfortable for you. Whatever the amount is, just do it now and know that you have our backs, we have yours, and we'll all make sense of it together. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR is the website. Uh, Promote yourself from just a listener to a sustaining contributor right now. I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door, they looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, yeah. And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes when that mic went on, I nailed that script And everyone was listening and it spread through the community and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone. I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions. Supporting WBUR will feel good. You will know that you are keeping WBUR going. You are keeping a service that is independent, that is fact-based, that is unbiased going. And you also can get an Eton radio for $10 a month. It's normally $20 a month. So act now. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Robert Hansen, the FBI agent who led a double life as a Soviet spy, died in a prison cell this week. Hansen may no longer be a household name, but he is still considered the most damaging spy in the Bureau's history. For more on Hansen, we turn to journalist Tim Weiner, an authority on intelligence gathering agencies. He's the author of Enemies, A History of the FBI and Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. Good morning. Good morning. Could you just give us a brief portrait of Robert Hansen and why it is said that his actions, uh, why he's called the most damaging spy in the Bureau's history? Hansen was a third-generation Chicago cop. His father and grandfather before him were crooked cops, and he knew that. And as he told one of his debriefers after his arrest, the bar wasn't too high for me. He joined the FBI in 76. By 79, he was an active spy for the Kremlin. uh, And off and on, uh, over the next 22 years, uh, he kept spying. And when he was on, he was indeed the most devastating spy in the Bureau's history. He was like a 500-year flood, this guy. Because because how, why? Like, what exactly did he do or what, what did he cause? All right, among, we don't have an hour, but among the many things he gave up were the identities of all the Soviets and Russians spying for the United States, uh, the fact that the FBI was tunneling under the new Soviet embassy to tap into its communications, uh, all the methodologies by which the United States tried to spy on the Soviets, the plans for World War III for the United States, who goes where, who does what. Wow. Uh, the list is long. How did he get away with it for so long? Because he was hiding in plain sight. His job was to analyze the FBI's spying operations against the Soviets. When two of the FBI's most prized recruits inside the Soviet embassy in Washington disappeared in 1985, the Bureau couldn't figure out why. Who had done this? We're all looking for the guy who'd done th- who's done this. They appointed the task force to look into how this had happened in 1988. Hansen led the task force. He was looking for himself. Hmm. So lives were lost as a result of his behavior. Careers were ruined as a result of, of his behavior. Um, it, how was he finally caught? Ah, for years after the arrest of the CIA's own mole, the FBI and the CIA realized that the CIA mole couldn't have done all the damage he thought he had done. There had to be another mole within the United States. The Bureau went looking inside the CIA for the second mole and destroyed the life of and career of at least one CIA officer. Finally, the CIA got in to the investigation and a former KGB officer offered to defect and to bring with him a file on the mole that the Russians were running inside the FBI. The FBI paid $7 million. The CIA went to Russia and got the file. And there was a tape in that file of Hansen talking to his handlers. Hmm. And on that tape was a particularly pithy phrase he had stolen from uh, General Patton, which we cannot say on the radio. Hmm. It was a very distinctive an obscene phrase. Hmm. And they played the tape, and one of the people listening to it said, oh my God, that's Hanson. Hmm. I heard him use that same obscene and pithy phrase uh, in the office. Many a time, he was nailed. 
So, so one of the points that you have made in in your reporting, and that others who follow this case have made, is that you know that, that just like you just said, he was hiding in plain sight. That that he wasn't suspected because he was perceived as one of them, one of the guys. He fit the, the, the sort of the profile: the straight arrow, deeply devout, a, a family man, you know, a, a, allegedly. So, even though he had some other sort of interesting sort of personal quirks that we're not going to go go into here, has anything changed as a result? of the Hansen scandal? Has, have either of these agencies looked at themselves and said there's something in our own culture that allowed this to flourish? Well, two things. Uh, one is there was a mentality that persisted into the 21st century of the FBI and the CIA saying, well, we know there's a mole, but it can't be one of us. It would never be one of us. Well, it was. And the second one is that after great and terrible struggle, uh, the FBI and the CIA have learned to work together. You know, they're totally different cultures. The FBI are cops. The CIA are robbers. Uh, they take great pains, great struggle over the decades to really screw each other rather than help each other. But now they have learned to help each other where it really counts. It took both the 9-11 disaster and these series of spy cases to get them to learn to live together and sing off the same sheet of music. Before we let you go, forgive me for sort of asking you to speculate, but how possible is it that there a new Robert Hansen could be keeping a desk at the FBI or the CIA but working for U.S. adversaries? Um, have procedures been tightened up so that, that couldn't happen again? Michelle, there is an actuarial certainty that as we speak, there are moles inside the U.S. intelligence community uh, and that they are working undetected. Hmm. That's Tim Weiner. He's the author of Enemies, A History of the FBI and Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. And he's currently working on a book about the CIA in the 21st century. Tim Weiner, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Most American kids quit playing sports at age 11. One reason, it's not fun anymore. We'll visit a high school in Maryland that's trying to keep kids in the game. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, you can tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR and NPR fight hard to get at the truth, to hold powerful people to account, and to shine a light where there is none. Our contributing listeners help to fund our work, not because they have to, but because they believe, as we do, that journalism with real impact is essential to our democracy. Join them. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. Coming up, you'll hear the BBC NewsHour, one of the best sources of international news available anywhere to anyone. And you'll get it just by listening to 90.9 or the WBUR app or by saying play WBUR to your smart speaker. 
As you're listening, think about how much you value what you hear. This morning, we're asking for your support to keep that service coming to you. We're asking 700 listeners to become monthly sustainers because when you give and when you give monthly, you help us know what funding we have to work with and then we can plan our reporting. Reporting we bring back to you every morning on important subjects that touch your life and affect your community. You become a reliable source of support that we can depend on. Do that for you, your family, your community, and help keep bringing them the responsible, fair journalism they rely on. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Sievertson. Good morning, Rupa. And you know, call me crazy, but I think it's only fair that if you have the means to support WBUR and you rely on WBUR every day, you listen every day like you are right now, you count on us, you you care about the stories, you tell other people about the stories, you know what's happening in the world because of WBUR, I think it's fair that if you have the money to support us that you do, that you give Whatever that amount is that feels right for you, maybe it's $10 a month, maybe it's $20 a month, maybe you have a little bit more and you can do more for WBUR because not everyone can. Maybe you can give $50 a month to WBUR. I think you, you, I know that you care about WBUR, and I think if you can protect it, you should right now. You should become one of those listeners that stands up and protects WBUR for everyone who relies on it. Because the fact of the matter is, we can't take this for granted. You can't take WBUR for granted. We don't exist without you. And you're only hearing what you've heard all morning because other listeners stepped up. So if you haven't done that yet, please do right now. If you've, if you've made a one-time gift in the past and you're ready to become a monthly contributor, you can give that $10, $15, $20 a month right now to WBUR. Please do. It's too important. Don't sit on the sidelines. Maybe you have for too long. This is your moment. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. Join us. When you give $10 a month this morning... You get an Eton radio. Do you know what that is? Usually it's $20 a month. This is one of the best emergency radios that you can buy. Eton has 35 plus years of experience in building solar powered radios and emergency weather alert radios. This is something you need. Hurricane season just started and climate change means environmental disasters in general are getting worse. So this is something that you will depend on at the worst moments when you need help and you turn to WBUR for that help, you will be able to receive WBUR on this handy green and black hand hand cranked radio that is also you can also charge it with solar power. You will be so grateful for it when the power goes out. It's water resistant. It has a USB phone charger and LED flashlight. You can use it to charge your phone and you can use it to stay connected to WBUR. So you will know and have everything you need in an emergency. That's what WBUR does for you on air and with the Eton radio. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We are there for you every morning. We need you to be there for us. Be our reliable support. WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. WBUR supporters include Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, 
offering professional, local, long-distance office and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.